From a whisper to a roar. 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 Welcome back to From a Whisper to a Roar, the oral history project conducted by Opening Doors London and supported by Heritage Fund UK. A history tracing the history and development of the modern LGBTQ movement through the voices of the lesbian, bi, and trans women who lived it. In our last episode, we spoke with Lisa Power, a co-founder of Stonewall and the Pink Paper and a former policy director for the Terence Higgins Trust. It was the 70s, a time of political strife and strikes, but now it's the 80s. And though music sounds like video games, things get progressively worse. if you paint a picture what was the political climate like at this time well the 80s the 80s again was growing polarization and certainly in the lesbian and gay movement um you were assumed to be left i mean we were all we were all great wearers of double denim and a lot of badges it was very much a badge wearing movement and i do remember a friend of mine saying to me that it was harder to come out as a Tory at Gay Switchboard than it was to come out as gay in the Tories, Mm -hmm. which I think was a slight exaggeration, but I know what he meant. Mm -hmm. Um, People were genuinely shocked to find out that anyone gay was a Tory, and I find it funny that, um, you know, um, LGBT Labour now have a sticker that says never kissed a Tory. I mean, in those days, it literally was enough to stop someone from going to bed with someone if they found out that they were a Tory. I mean, I, I remember gay friend of mine saying that, you know, he wished that people would keep their mouths shut till after he'd had sex with them because he felt constrained to stop if they indicated that they were a Tory. A one-legged army limping away from the storm they had created. Left, 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 left. It was was very, very polarised, but it was polarised in a lot of ways, not just that way. and there was a lot of holier than thou, but there was also an awful lot of fun. And I did, I think because I was on switchboard, because I was hanging out with people who were trying to do something constructive all the way through that time, whether it was Silver Moon Women's Bookshop or Gaze the Word or um, Daft or, you know, all sorts of bits and pieces. I think it was good. Um, and I had an interesting time. One of the things people forget is there was quite a lot of legislative work that went on during the 80s before Stonewall existed. Everybody acts like Stonewall were the first people to ever go out there and do anything about legislation. We did a lot in the 80s, it just wasn't terribly successful because I think in the 80s we very much thought that if we demonstrated enough and if we had the trade unions and, you know, a few leftist allies on our side that we would eventually win all the arguments and everything would moved to a socialist nirvana in which um, lesbians and gay men were completely accepted, Um, except that was bollocks because it wasn't enough of a coalition to win anything. Um, But there was a legislative conference and the Organisation for Lesbian and Gay Action came out of that. And the structure was that it was democratic, 
will accept that we couldn't reach out to most lesbians, gay men across the country. So it was democratic within a, a very much London activist hegemony. Mm. Um, and there were multiple caucuses. Uh, there was a women's caucus, a black caucus, and a disability caucus that I remember, but there were also a couple of others. Um, and if any of those caucuses vetoed anything, it couldn't happen. There was, there was absolutely no pragmatism in a lot of the politics of the 80s. It was deeply purist. Um, and it was very false democratic. It was, was democratic within a little bubble. But it wasn't democratic in the sense of genuinely listening to all the people who didn't, didn't have a stake in the game. And I think that's why... You know, when Stonewall came along and it recognised that there were tens of thousands of, at that point, we would have said lesbians and gay men who didn't go on demonstrations in London, who didn't live in Soho, um, who didn't, you know, take part in those tiny activist groups, but who were quite willing to do something to stand up after Section 28, um, provided they could preferably do it from their armchairs um, and by signing letters and giving a bit of money to someone. Um, and, and that opened up a whole load of people who, who'd been a very silent part of the lesbian and gay community. What I, I unkindly, but, you know, used to think of as, you know, the dog breeders in Eastbourne, you know, the lesbian knitting circles in, in um, Leeds or whatever, although Leeds actually was a hotbed of radicalism, that's a very bad example. But you know what I mean? All, yeah. all of those women who were living very quiet lives and they might have got the Kenrick newsletter or something like that, but they didn't actually. Mm. You know, they, they found another lesbian and got married very, very quickly in their heads and that was it. Um, I, I do remember the, the 70s and the 80s were a bit of a nightmare if you were a solo lesbian and all your friends were in couples because you were seen as potential problem. <laughs> you know, you might go off with one of them because everybody was into serial monogamy. Although the gays, the word lesbian discussion group, God bless them, you could absolutely rely on the, the, the topics that would come round every few months were um, monogamy and non-monogamy, S&M, um, polyamory. I don't think they called it that then, but that's essentially what it was. Um, you know, there were, there were certain topics that, that were all about, you know, how to be a lesbian and, and stuff. And it's very funny because the woman... Um, who describes herself as the um, the lesbian poet laureate, um, Trudy, came up to me a couple of years ago and was like, oh, Lisa, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I think I do know you, but I can't remember where from. And then I suddenly had this blinding memory of her bouncing up and down in the Gays the Word lesbian discussion group, which was having a particularly theory-heavy discussion about, I think, S&M and, and, you know, a lot of guilt stuff going around. And she was just bouncing up and down going, but sex should be fun! <laughs> and it's like, yay! Thank God for somebody saying it. Yeah. People were terrified, generally, of being out. I mean, for me, that's actually one of the most important things that the Gay Liberation Front did, um, was the absolute insistence on being out. And I find myself still being a terrible fundamentalist about that. Mm. And I remember when we founded Stonewall... There was actually some debate because we had one of the people who'd been helping to found us um, had been told uh, basically by his employer that they would sack him if he went public as a founder of Stonewall because we were clear to say that all of our founders were lesbian or gay. Um, and, and 
some of some of the um, particularly some of the gay men felt oh well you know he should be allowed to join and stay in the closet and we I remember some of us uh, including myself and Jenny Wilson were absolutely like you know absolutely no we all have to be out we cannot be seen to be ashamed of who we are we cannot be be seen to be afraid of letting the world know um, and I can still be quite fundamentalist about that although of course there's a much more diffuse set of things to be out about now yeah absolutely um, so um, possibly if you'd give us a um, picture of the, the larger political climate in terms of um, Maggie Thatcher's administration and coming up to Section 28 yeah. uh, and, and then we can talk about the drivers of Stonewall. Margaret, Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister for most of the 80s, if not all of it. No, not... Pretty much. Yeah, she was. Um but what you've got to remember is by the time we got to Section 28, she was on her third administration mm. um, and she was beginning to lose popularity. And what had been happening over the course of the 80s was a hardening of rhetoric and a drawing up of battle lines. Um, and a lot of that was over the Greater London Council in London, who had in, I think, 1985 produced um, a lesbian and gay manifesto, Changing the World. Uh, which was one of the things that Stonewall used in drawing up its legislative programme. So there was Changing the World, there was the stuff that came out of the Lesbian and Gay Legislative Conference the following year, um, which Ken Livingstone um, and a whole bunch of other people also supported. Jermaine Greer was there, and we really thought we were making a breakthrough, and then it all slid backwards. And a lot of what was going on was not just the politicians, um, and you have to remember that... There were no out gay politicians of their own free will until Chris Smith. Mm. I mean, there was Maureen Colquhoun, who was a lesbian, but she'd been exposed while an MP, and then she lost her seat over it. Mm. Um, and then, you know, Chris was the first one to come out in office and retain his seat um, and to come out of his own free will. So we have very few role models there. We have very few role models on television. I mean, the EastEnders kiss was a huge deal. Um, Michael Cashman playing Colin. Uh, all of this was, you know, there were, there were these groundbreaking things going on which enabled us to think we were making progress. But at the same time, there was huge hatred from the mainstream press. Um, and... There was an attempt to make us become an electoral liability. People forget now that Labour backed away from uh, gay rights issues an awful lot during the 80s. Um, and it was, a, it was a fight within Labour and within the trade union movement and all those places because lesbians and gay men were seen as an electoral liability mm. because of the way that the media handled us. Um, and it is very analogous to what's happening with trans people now. Mm very analogous, which is why an awful lot of us who were activists then are actually very clear about our support for trans people now. Mm. Um, sadly, not everyone sees the analogy who was there, but most of us do. Um, and um, and so there, there, we didn't see the battle lines being drawn up. And a lot of people didn't pay much attention when a backbencher tabled a motion at the end of her second term which didn't make it through but they were clearly given the nod that if the Tories got back in 
this would continue. And so when the local government bill came, it was very easy to stick a clause in it, which particularly tried to stop local government from supporting lesbians and gay men because the, there was a lot of propaganda about lesbian gym mats um, and funding for the gay youth groups which were corrupting young people mm. um, and any money whatsoever that was used for lesbians and gay men was blown up out of all proportion. Um, there were a lot of cartoons that were hateful to us, a lot of hate speech um, and increasing visibility brought increasing hatred and then Section 28 happened, and very naively we thought that if we held some huge demonstrations um, and some stunts, which I have to say were excellent stunts, and it was the first time that lesbians had led stunts instead of gay men, and I remember quite a few gay men of my acquaintance going, bloody hell, the lesbians are ahead of us, we'd better get out there and do something. Mm. You know, it actually really inspired quite a lot of other people to be more activist. But we thought that, you know, stunts and marching would would win the day. We wouldn't talk to the Tories. I remember um, Mike McCann, who was the chair of the Gay Business Association, being hissed at an organising meeting quite early on about the resistance to Section 28 because the Gay Business Association had gone into Hendon Police College to try and train young police recruits about the gay community in hopes of ameliorating the shitty things they did at that point and the prejudice that some of them showed. But that was not allowed. Um, and the arts lobby, which was one of the groups against Section 28, went into Parliament and talked with the Lords and with the Tories. And they also were given a very hard time for that by some of the other activists. Um, so, you know, after Section 28 happened and... You have to remember that the whole point of Section 28 was that it was there to frighten people. Nobody was ever prosecuted under it. What happened was a vast amount of people started to self-censor themselves, and particularly in education, which wasn't the most obvious target when it was happening, it became something to hold over teachers and schools. Yes, because they were, Section 28 specifically said that local authorities were not allowed to... They were not allowed to promote, promote homosexuality. homosexuality. But, and particularly promote it yeah. as a pretended family yeah. relationship. But it's the plight of individual boys and girls which worries me most. Too often, our children don't get the education they need, the education they deserve. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated. But, but it was, you know, it was intended to stop local authority funding. And I can remember, I was at that point, I was one of the people who'd started the Pink Paper, which was a, the first lesbian and gay newspaper since gay news had collapsed. Or the ones that had happened in between were very strictly gay men. Um, and I remember writing about how this could impact environmental health inspectors. They could close down gay clubs because, you know, they had to license them from the local authority and stuff. We were trying to frighten the clubs and people into taking notice. And indeed, that did work. And Mike McCann, for all people were treating him shittily. I remember he paid out of his own pocket for a whole load of posters that went up in clubs like Heaven, which said, this is happening. This is what Section 28 is and ended with 
capital letters at the bottom of it saying, get off your arses and march, mm. trying to get people out for the big London marches. Mm. So the London marches were huge, weren't The they? first one was amazingly huge, considering it was mid-January, and I remember when Section 28 happened, it, it was November, end of, and end of November before we got it clear, uh, and we were all trying to organise for this London march when all the students had gone home, and conventional wisdom was you couldn't hold a decent march without all the students. Yeah. Um, but we did. We held a really huge one, and then there was the Manchester one, and then another London one. But they were organised by three different groups. And what people also don't remember is there was massive infighting within the community over who owned the campaign against Section 28. Mm. So Olga had a march and then the Manchester people had a march and then um, the campaign against Section 28 held a march in London. And people were not, you know, people were jockeying for position to own the gay movement, which was also unhelpful. Mm. Um and the stunts that you referred to, the women... Yeah, the women... Invading yeah. the six o'clock news. I mean, they were brilliant. And I think they, along with the example of um, Queer Nation in New York and the US, they were what contributed to the founding of Outrage because I think there were a lot of gay men who felt that they'd let the side down because the lesbians had done better than them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's good that it's good that we remember the direct action, but we also must remember that we didn't actually win. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what what did happen was that some of us who had met each other through the fight against Section Twenty Eight just started to draw the different threads together, and to have something which wasn't going to be takeoverable because the other thing that used to happen in the 80s was we'd get a new group going and um, straight left groups would come and try and take it over and bring their agenda in instead. And that had happened. We had a real problem at the legislation conference with straight left groups who tried to force their general socialist agenda on us. I mean, I don't think it was even particularly socialist. A lot of it was just jargon. Um, But... That happened, and the same thing happened with both ACT UP and Outrage. There was a real fight to stop the straight-left people from taking over them because they were just open entry. And that's why Stonewall was founded in the way it was, as a small, dedicated lobbying group of people who were chosen for diversity, even though we didn't use the word diversity then. We we wanted people from across um, the gay world We wanted people with specific skills and we were very clear that we were a closed shop who were not answerable to anyone because we were going to go into places like Parliament and have discussions which could not be repeated in public until we knocked some sense into the politicians. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was very scary because people do forget Stonewall received more resistance from the rest of the lesbian and gay movement than it did from... Um, the straight world and straight politicians, which is fascinating. How did you recruit? Very haphazardly. I mean, what happened was there were five or six gay men who basically were having slightly drunken lunch at Ian McKellen's place, bemoaning the fact that Section 28 had gone through. Um, And instead of doing the traditional gay male thing and all getting around a piano and having a sing, um, they got round a typewriter and Duncan Campbell thumped away at Ian's typewriter um, and the others dictated a manifesto um, and said, 
you know, we have to do something about this. And they thought about the format and then a couple of them actually had the sense and the grace to go, we need an equal number of women. And one of the things I find fascinating was people didn't look at that stuff in those days properly. But Stonewall said we have to be 50-50 men and women. They were also incredibly clear that they had to be racially diverse um, and politically diverse. So people came in by word of mouth. I think the first woman they talked to was a woman called Debo Ballard because she was a lawyer. Turned out to be the wrong kind of lawyer for what we wanted to do, but she was known to Ian and the people in the arts lobby. So they they asked her in. There was this, this kind of weird thing that they wanted people who had skills and were sparky, but not people who would cling to the way we'd always done things. Mm. So myself um, and Jenny Wilson very much came out of the movement as it existed, but we were both seen as people who were willing to try things different that were different or differently. And I know of, and I'll spare their blushes by not naming them, but I know of other women and men with whom conversations were held over drinks which weren't they weren't blatant recruitment meetings but they were basically people from the existing group sizing people up thinking about whether they would fit into what was happening the jigsaw puzzle that was being put together and people who were rejected because when that conversation started to happen they were you know i know in a couple of places place, a couple of cases people who literally dived in and said well you have to do this and you have to do that and it has to be democratic and you have to be transparent and it's just like that's not what's happening um you know and there are people who i think feel quite sore to this day that they weren't picked um, who was doing the actual recruiting well it it it, it was cumulative, uh, cumulative as it went on that. so yeah. initially um, it was just a couple of people, you know. Uh, I mean, the, the people who were there right from the start were Ian, Michael, um, Duncan, Simon Fanshawe, and uh, um, and they just picked up people. And there were there were a couple of people who were always silent. There was a guy called Douglas Slater, who was the um, he was the clerk to the leader of the House of Lords. I mean, no way on God's earth could he be seen as part of us. But he actually was very much a driving force around all the work done on the early legislative stuff and how to handle politicians, because he absolutely had the inside track on that. Um, And right from the start, there were straight allies who were involved in discussions, but they were never allowed to become members of the group. Mm. Um, And I remember there were discussions about whether trance was part of it or not. And actually, at that point, there was some very interesting stuff going on in the trance movement, which was very split between the trance activists who were seen as very reformist, if you like, the campaign for homosexual equality of trance issues, which was Christine Burns and the Press for Change people, who were doing exactly what Stonewall came to do. You know, They were doing all the legislative stuff. They were wearing suits and looking respectable. And then you had all the radical trans people, most of whom were queer, um, many of whom identified as lesbian or gay as well, and they were just seen as part of the lesbian and gay movement. So if we'd come across a trans lesbian at that point who was a lesbian or a a gay man, we might have considered recruiting them. Um, And at that point, Switchboard was going through conniptions about because we'd recruited our first trans lesbian Mm. member. And, you know, so these, you know, but we just didn't actually happen to come across someone. It wasn't excluding trans people it was seen that there was a parallel track Mm. and people like christine burns 
at that point were running parallel to us. Of course, what happened was over the years, the paths came closer and closer together and, and yet Stonewall clung to not being and not including trans people until far longer than it should have. Mm. Um, but, but that's how it came about. I mean, there was quite a lot of mapping of what was going on. There was a lot of discussion. I mean, just the naming of Stonewall. Um, everything at that point had to have the words lesbian and gay in it. So there was Olga and Ilga and Lager and Gallop and mm. all these things. And I remember we just threw our hands up and said, sit to death with this. We're not having it. We're just going to name it something that's just naming it and that isn't either well, as completely <laughs> obvious or, um, you know, ha- we're, we're not going to be trapped by the need to use, use certain letters in an acronym. Yeah. Um, and it, the name Stonewall was actually invented around my kitchen table and it was, it was me, um, backed up by my girlfriend Jenny, um, who said, look, Stonewall means something to lesbians and gay men or it mean, meant something to some of us at least. It meant something to the politicised end of us at that mm. point. But it means absolutely nothing to straight people. You've got to remember that there was no education about Stonewall at all at that point. Um, And so it was kind of, it it was a dog whistle in a good way for anybody who was lesbian or gay, if we were called Stonewall. But as I said at the time, you know, the average Tory MP would probably just think we were an architectural consultancy (laughs) until they found out the hard way (laughs) what we were. Mm. Um, So we had, we were, had the lobbying part was called Stonewall and there was a fundraising and charitable arm because you couldn't be a lobbying group and a charity at that point I mean we in the long run it worked out that it's just all one but we called the other part Iris which was the goddess of the rainbow Mm. Um, and that also avoided the fact that there were men in the group who said it has to be gay and lesbian whereas others were like, everybody says lesbian and gay now. Well, I don't see why. I mean, there was a lot of that kind of very basic, you know. Mm. In, ter- in my terms, I was trying to explain to people about feminism and how, not, how people could not put their foot in it with activists and stuff like that. Um, and on the other hand, they were um, educating me about how to behave with politicians and how to get more by tickling than scratching, as my granny would have said. Mm. Um, and, you know, we had some quite lively discussions. I can remember the age of consent. I mean, we all believed, we, we were very clear that we were about equality. But then when it came to discussing the age of consent, there was a real feeling from some of the early members, interestingly, some of the early members who were men, that if we asked for 16, we'd be laughed out of court. It was pie in the sky, so we should only ask for 18. Um, and actually I can remember Jenny and I arguing absolutely furiously along with some of the men that it had to be equality and that we might well go for 18 um, as a tactic but it had to be only ever seen as a way station Mm. Um, but what was also good about Stonewall for me was that it tackled all those legislative issues which actually affected lesbians because everybody always went on and on and on about the age of consent Mm. Um, and actually there were more people who were suffering, and gay men as well as lesbians, suffering from lack of employment protections, mm. lack of equality legislation, um, lack of educational support, you know, all of those things that were happening. Family courts were horrendous. You would almost automatically have your kids taken away from you. Um, if you were a gay man, you might be refused even access mm. uh, to your kids, you know. Uh, 
and people forget that now, that there was all this wide swathe of legislation other than the age of consent, which did actually hit lesbians, that people didn't think about very much because we were all so used to it being there. You know, we were actually, you know, it was, a, it was more than an element of Stockholm Syndrome about some of the, some of the lesbian and gay community at the time, you know, and, and quite a lot of people who kind of felt that we should just be quiet and be respectable. And it's very funny that I see that coming back now. There's just been a blazing row here in uh, Wales about um, what prides should be. Mm-hmm. because one pride advertised that in order to be family friendly it was banning um leather and kink and uh, sexualized costumes <laughs> um which caused an absolute furore um but some people are trying to posit that now that we've got equal marriage and families and stuff like that oh we can't have these unrespectable types and i find it very funny because in the 80s uh, I was on the Pride in London committee, or London Pride as it was then, committee very briefly in the, oh, 82, 83 sort of time. Um, and we then we were debating whether you could allow drag at Pride because it was anti-feminist, it was anti-women. Drag was insulting to women, and a lot of bad drag was insulting to women and remains so. Um, but, you know, nobody blinks twice at most of the compares at Pride's now being drag queens. Mm. But... Uh, and this this particular pride was saying, oh, drag kings and queens are welcome, but not sexualised costume and not not kink. And it's like, but here in Cardiff, we have the leather queens and the puppies. And the, the puppies are the ones that really upset people. And the kids love them because the kids totally understand about dressing up and playing. Mm-hmm. You know, they just think this is grown ups who haven't stopped being kids. And this looks like a lot of fun. And the hen parties adore the leather queens. I mean, I've, I, I've seen I saw the leather queens a couple of years ago on the march got literally ambushed by a hen party who insisted on sitting in their laps and having their photo taken with them. <laughs> and, and the leather men were actually very patient about the whole thing. Um, but, you know, people are not bothered about that. But we're very good at self-censoring ourselves. And I think that was, although it's coming back now because of that, it was very much worse in the 80s. There was an awful lot of overly respectabilization of stuff. Do you um, think that the self-censoring comes from a kind of internalised gay shame? Oh, yeah. I don't think there's a generation yet that we've managed to raise that hasn't grown up with at least some idea in our heads that we're second-class citizens or bad people or flawed. Mm. You know, flawed is probably the kindest way we think of it. Mm. Um, we've all had that upbringing... And some people have paid for a lot of therapy to get rid of it. Some people have done other things. I think I did gay activism um, because I was always quite bolshy about it. Um, but yes, we have all got it at the back of our heads. And I, you know, for my generation, I've got other stuff. I still, I'm still faintly unnerved by gay police officers, <laughs> just from the alternative lifestyle I led when I was young. And you know, when we were. You know, I, I remember the first time we actually had the nerve to report queer bashing to the police and the policeman who came round to the house actually saying, well, we're here for everyone, even the likes of you. <laughs> and he thought he was being nice to us. Yeah. You know? um, so, yes, I do think, I do think, you know, I mean, I, I think people take it a bit far with all the sort of the velvet revolution or whatever, you know, the velvet, not velvet revolution, but you know, the, all the stuff which is about how our mental health has been ruined by 
um, homophobia, but I certainly think it affects some people more than others. And I think the longer you stay in the closet, the worse it is. For people like me who sort of popped out the moment the idea occurred to them, um, I think life has been much easier. And I see a parallel with that, with all the years I spent in HIV, the people who didn't conceal their HIV diagnosis any longer than they felt they absolutely had to, and or the people who determined to not conceal it even though it cost them something, in general had stronger mental health than people who sat on it for donkey's years. Mm. Um, I really think being in the closet is what damages you because you carry more shame for longer. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we all grew up thinking there was something wrong with it, but the, more, the quicker you get rid of it, the better off you are. And throughout the 80s, that was the time of the AIDS crisis yeah. appearing in this country and growing. So that's, that's another well, that, thread yeah. against which possibly... Yeah. Was that something that fed into Stonewall? I think for gay men, that, that made... It kind of made it worse, but it also made it more important to do something. I mean, it, again, it made more people into activists because people were dying and being reclaimed by their families and their lovers who they'd lived with for donkey's years couldn't go to the funeral. Um, people were losing their right to live in their home because their partner had died and it was in their name. All these things that had happened because of closetry were coming back to hit people in a really blatant way. First, only gays and IV drug users were being killed by AIDS. But now we know every one of us could be devastated by it. Um, and the injustices were much more obvious and much more painful when it was around death and disease. Um, and, and it was doubly difficult. If you had to come out, of your come out to your parents because you were gay, some people found difficult. But coming out to them because you were dying and you were gay and you caught this awful thing that everybody was terribly scared of was so much harder. Mm. Um, so I think it, it both, it complicated things and it devastated um, large chunks of the community, the gay male community. And it gave quite a lot of people long-term post-traumatic stress disorder, which a lot of us haven't dealt with, um, who were closely involved. But it also, it brought lesbians and gay men closer together because lesbians stepped a lot of lesbians stepped up to the post, not everybody. Um, it brought a fighting spirit to things. Um, but I think, I think the, the AIDS crisis fed into our determination to not put up with shit anymore. The, the other fight, the, the fight that happened where Stonewall became very unpopular in the gay movement, and I find this amazing now, um, but then I think there are large chunks of my life where something that was a fight earlier on People don't blink a hair at now. There was a huge row over outing people in the early nineties. Massive row, because outrage was outing people willy nilly, um, and Stonewall was very clear that outing people who were ashamed of being lesbian or gay was not a useful tactic, because we didn't want we didn't want publicity for people who were ashamed of them. If somebody was being actively hateful to our community, I could see that the temptation to out them was fairly massive. Mm. And I've certainly gossiped about people in those circumstances. But, you know, Stonewall's line was, 
you bring people to coming out and and also thank you we'll use that as a lever behind the scenes mm. you know um there were but for people it, there were a there were quite a lot of particularly conservative politicians who didn't want to come out but who were supportive to the aims of Stonewall and the gay movement and were helpful to us. Um, and we didn't see that pushing them out of a closet was going to help in the least because it actually made them less able to use their power mm. to help us. Mm. Um, and also, almost all of them have come out eventually. Mm. But also, outrage went a lot further than I think was sensible or sane. So they were outing people who were utterly mortified and... I, I, there was some poor bishop who came out when they hadn't even targeted him yet, but he heard they were going to target him, so he sort of leapt before he could be pushed. Mm. You know, I think the whole the whole outing people against their will thing was a very big deal in the 90s, and we've largely forgotten it now. Mm. Um, and I think we are now at a position where we don't generally out people. Um, and we might tickle them a bit to come along the way, um, but we don't out people unless they are being very harmful to the community. And that's certainly happening in the States now, and that seems to be the line that everyone's drawn. So when um, Stonewall started, did it just take over your life? Well, not take over my life. I mean, I was doing Stonewall, um, and certainly in the planning stages, I was also running the first, the first lesbian sex toy mail-order business in the <laughs> UK, Thrilling Bits, um, which... My girlfriend and I had started as it was part of the rumbling end of the S&M debates and the lesbian sex wars and stuff. And we were we were pro sex, but we weren't we weren't S&M or anything like that. Um, but there were no decent sex toys. And we knew I mean, everything got taken from states at that time. We knew that there were lots of lesbian activity in San Francisco um, actually making you know women friendly sex toys. So so we, we started to do this mail order business, which was hilarious because we kept very anonymous who was doing it to start with. Um, and we had enough contacts in the uh, lesbian and gay press to be able to get stuff out without it being obviously us. Mm -hmm. um, and all these women were ordering stuff from us who were condemning sexual diversity in public. It was just very funny. So um, you knew people who were speaking in... Yeah, in, we, in the we, we knew where the hypocrisy about, yeah. was. Yeah. Um, and for the sake of people who might not know very much, what were the sex wars all about? It was characterised as what was called vanilla sex versus S&M. Um, but S&M got widened to include not only submission and domination. It actually widened out to almost anything that was... I mean, certainly there were discussions about whether lesbians should ever have penetrative sex, sex because all, it was yeah. anti-feminist to penetrate. That was male yeah. Um, and I, I can even remember talk about, you know, someone being on top of the other person was was um, patriarchal. Um, and it was <laughs> patriarchal all, we, sex. That really we all used to take the piss out of it being you know, two women lying side by side, sighing gently and gently fingering only the external <laughs> vulva of each other. And of course, most lesbians had all kinds of sex. I mean, I actually was quite a sexual innocent. I'd never seen a double-ended dildo till I actually sold one. You know, I'd, I'd never used a dildo until I had them sitting all around the living room. Mostly I just dusted them then. <laughs> um, but, but we just felt that, you know, it should not be silenced and women shouldn't be shamed for anything they wanted to do sexually that didn't hurt someone else. So, yeah, Stonewall. Um, and I was with Stonewall for a bit, but 
I've been I've always been quite good at founding things and then moving on. I'm I'm quite good at knowing when my time is done with an organisation. So I did move on and I was getting more and more involved in HIV stuff as well by then, um, working within HIV, doing stuff around that. And I kind of moved away from um, what was what was becoming LGB and then LGBT activism for a bit. And then as I've given up full-time work in HIV, I've become much more involved again. But I'm now doing much more stuff around history. So I'm a trustee of Queer Britain, the museum project. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a historical artefact in my own right. And I just think it's fascinating <laughs> the way that people are starting to value um, queer history in a way that they really haven't done before. Mm. And there's so much out there. And I think it's fascinating because it is, it's, it's a Wild West frontier of history. You know, there's only so many books you can write about Henry VIII and his wives, mm-hmm. um, although there's some excellent recent stuff done on Thomas Cromwell because everybody ignored him. Um, but, you know, there, there aren't that many frontiers. Mm. Um, and... LGBT history and particularly the histories of minorities within um, LGBT stuff. So I've been talking to some people about the history of the South Asian LGBT movement in in the UK and stuff like that. This is all, you know, and we still got a lot of people have got the artifacts in in their um, attics. You know, we, we can preserve this stuff now. Um, and the other reason I got back into LGBT history activism specifically was that I started to notice people quoting things like GLF and Stonewall inaccurately um, as a way of shoring up their own personal politics. Mm. So, for example, everybody says the first pride was a riot, you know, first pride was a protest. Well, it was a protest, but it also built itself and GLF built it as a carnival parade. You know, um, it's always been both those things, but people forget that. And I also caught modern um, ACT UP activists talking about GLF as if it was all about legislative change when it it was actually about much wider stuff. So I I was very keen in the 90s to do um, a GLF book because people were dying. Um, And... You know, we need to collect this stuff before people go. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an awful lot we can learn. And for me, one of the proofs of that is that all of what we learned in the 80s about Section 28 and the build-up to it, we can now bring to bear on the hate campaigns against trans people because it's a very direct echo. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that has brought a lot of younger gay men, for example, who might otherwise have just gone, nothing to do with me, squire. You know, if once they see the parallels, they're engaged. So. so what do you feel are the greatest successes of Stonewall? Um, Stonewall, the riot UK. or Stonewall, Stonewall UK? UK? I keep having to try and get people to remember the differences. Yes, I did actually come across someone recently who'd written a thing about me, for a blurb about me, who said, um, Lisa, Lisa founded the Stonewall riots yes. 50 years ago. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not quite that, that old, old, thank you very much. Um, neither did I ever live in the US. Um, I think the biggest achievement of Stonewall UK has been something which isn't very popular with old radical activists, and that is that they have made LGBT stuff mainstream, and they have made lots of people like big companies care about 
having LGBT employees and looking after them. And they have made politicians be pro-LGBT who wouldn't have given us a second thought before. Um, they have had an amazing set of legislative changes, but they had to wait for a Labour government for those to happen. And indeed, even when a Labour government came in, they frequently had to wait for Europe to beat Labour over the head mm. because that way Tony Blair could maintain popularity with everyone, not just with us. Um, I think that it's going to be very interesting now that the tide is turning and people are, you know, hate crime is rising against us, all sorts of other things are going on. We are facing a neo-fascist set of movements. Mm. Um, and we are one of the obvious targets again. I think that, for me, it's going to be more difficult to destroy the LGBT movement in the UK because Stonewall and people like Stonewall have made us part of the fabric of society. And for all of the getting angry with phrases like family-friendly, the fact that we are families, the fact that when people now try and say you can't teach our children about LGBT issues. We can turn around and say, but they're our children too. Mm. We're part of families mm. and some of those kids are growing up to be gay too and don't you dare make any more of us second-class citizens. We've, we've got woven into the fabric of society here in a way that hasn't happened in the US and that hasn't happened in some other countries. There are other countries where it's happened, particularly in Northern Europe. Um, those countries were ahead of us to start with, in fact. Um, and I can remember um, talking to some Danish activists who were quite worried about Britain being in the EU because they felt that um, our politicians would hold them back in terms of equal rights for LGBT people. So, uh, you know, we've been considered a bit of a nuisance in Europe for quite a long time and, and holding other countries back. Um, so I think, you know, it's almost intangible, that stuff. And it's also something that people dislike Stonewall for. But, you know, if we want to get change in countries where we're still illegal, we'll do that with the economic power of those big multinationals. We won't do it because we have a demonstration outside the embassy gates in London. We'll do it because a big multinational will say to a minister that they have access to and we don't in that country, I can't bring my best talent here because you'd prosecute them. Um, I want to make money in this country and make money for you and make your economy better. And I can't do that with you unless you stop being prejudiced. And that was Lisa Power a high-profile gay rights activist, co-founder of Stonewall and the Pink Paper, who has kindly shared her experience of her early days through the 70s right through to the end of the 80s. We're now picking up the story with Marguerite McLaughlin. You might remember her from the first episode of our series. She was born in New York, but spent most of her life in the UK, engaged in a range of activism to support the LGBTQ community. In the first episode, Marguerite recalled for us the climate of activism in the U.S. in the 1960s upon hearing the news of the Stonewall riots over the radio. 
Today, she relates her experience of returning 50 years on to take part in the celebrations to mark this wonderful anniversary. How far do you feel they've gone to a sense of the kind of liberations that you wanted to see when you were a youngster back in the, in New York? The thing I struggle with, and I'm sure it was because of my experiences in my youth, and it's something I reflected on quite a lot when I was in New York for the Global Pride. 50th anniversary was that I was very involved in a movement that was looking to offer alternatives to the status quo. And yet slowly but surely, the status quo has become part of us. When I look at the corporate sponsors for Opening Doors London, for example, and I see the, the gay staff groups, the LGBT plus plus, et cetera, staff groups, and the referencing of one's spouse as your wife or your husband, and the achievement of a corporate identity, profession, lifestyle, with 2.5 kids and a dog and a house in the suburbs. And I know I'm doing this as an extreme to make the point. Things like fighting for the right to marry, of course, were very important. But I don't ever want us to lose the recognition or the critique or the analysis of the fact that often marriage doesn't work for straight people, never mind for queer ones, and particularly the position of women within the context of marriage. I find it very interesting that of all the people that I know and all the lesbians I know who've had children within lesbian relationships, the model is still to have children with your sexual partner. And yet, sexual partners are the most volatile relationship. So to put your children's security on the line in relation to a sexual relationship rather than, for example, a, an extended family created to raise children, but not necessarily in that monogamous nuclear family way, just hasn't happened. There are a few alternatives, but actually very, very few. What do you think is holding us back from um really critiquing institutions like that rather than trying to assimilate? I'm not sure. But it is definitely, I felt like I fought for the right for alternatives as well as to be, just like everybody else. And actually, I do know exactly what it is. It's global capitalism. That's what's doing it. It's the whole co-opting of 
everything about the way we live our lives in terms of work and where we live, I've become very aware of the, the importance of the politics of space. When I was first in London, London was shrinking and we had huge amounts of space that we could take over. Um, we, lots of us were squatters, either legal or illegal. And you, you were able to create cafes, places to live, uh, creative spaces, performance spaces. And now those things are impossible because of the price of everything, the cost of everything. So we're, you know, we're grabbed around the throat by the, the need to, to generate very serious amounts of money for everything. Or the need to own. Yes. Yeah. Including people. Very much so. And I felt that so strongly, seeing the, and of course it played itself out in New York um, for the 50th anniversary, because there was a dike march, there was the original, what they were calling Global Pride 50, which was the, ended up being called the Corporate March, and then there was an alternative to the Corporate March, which was referred to as the People's March. And there were huge numbers of people for all of them. So it all happened and it all happened side by side. And with an amazing lack of aggression or confrontation or separatism, all of the marches were really inclusive and that wasn't necessarily a given. You know, it's not something that you could take for granted by any means. But the Dyke March was supported by just such an array of people along the march. People singing to us, people bringing water to us because it was so hot. What did they sing? There is nothing like a dike, nothing in the world, all sorts of things like that. Or when we got down to the bottom to Washington Square Park, there's a huge arch in the park and a huge number of gay men in wild costumes surrounded the arch and sang when the dikes go marching in. <laughs> and there were Three, three bands playing along the route and loving signs, loving messages, things like everything from, you know, we, you know, we're with you to one, one beautiful young man on, wearing almost nothing but roller skates with a big sign saying, remember to hydrate, it's hot outside. And he was standing next to these people who were from a local church who came along with little trays with water, like you see at the marathon, but for the dike march. It was superb. So give us a sense of your feelings 
getting up on the morning, getting ready for the dike march and joining all those women. I had so wanted there to be a dike march in London. I had been aware of the New York one for quite a long time because this this year's march was the 27th. So it's been on the eve of the major pride march mm -hmm. and all the dikes or most lots of the dikes that go on the dike march then go on the gay pride march as well. It isn't a separatist march in that kind of way. But to see, I reckon there were about 7,000 women. And to see 12 blocks of every shape, size, age, outfit, ability, identity, but identifying as dykes and marching with drummers and dykes on bikes and some very moving acknowledgements like the the march knew that on a certain street on a certain corner as we marched by the women who were too old to march had all been taken to a place in the shade where they could be comfortable and watch the march go by and the rest of the march knew where to, to be able to look to these women and acknowledge them and honor them and then in turn to be honored back and things like that those sorts of conscious acts of acknowledgement recognition unity i think are tremendously important because you can fight for things like legal rights but we have to be very careful that those things can also be taken away very, very quickly. And what we really need is a sense of having each other there. That intersectionality is something that started off the Pride movement and is still very much alive in the States. And I'm hoping that it's, it's exhibiting itself in increasingly imaginative and constructive ways here as well. I'm imagining that there must have been a roller coaster of emotions. I'm tearing up hearing about the old folk. So how was it for you? I just had the most fantastic time. It was just such great fun. And that thing of Yes, I'm a, an old lesbian socialist feminist or feminist socialist or what have you. My loyalties are to that community. So it was, it was very much like going home all those years later to something that has truly become in New York an inclusive event. I know there's been struggles, there's been conflicts, confrontations, even in places like San Francisco. But New York seems to have got its house. And so what was the reaction of people outside the community as you were moving around? Eventually, it felt like the whole of Manhattan got pedestrianized 
on the official 50th anniversary day, on the Sunday. The police just couldn't cope with the crowds. So they just, one by one, shut down all of the avenues in New York and the whole of Manhattan was pedestrianized. And everyone went around saying to each other, happy pride, happy pride, all day. And again, gay folk recognizing each other, tourists, families who came for the day to see all of the amazing spectacle that was going on. And it just felt like a huge party. And were you on the People's Walk as well as the... um what were the differences between the People's March and the Dyke March? Well, the People's March was mixed. The Dyke March Obviously, was yeah, yeah the women's, the women's march. Although, you know, some men marched as well, but it was really hugely women um, of every type you could possibly imagine in terms of identifying. Um, a lot of the dykes were then on the People's March. The corporate, it was the corporate march that people were reacting against because it was an event where if you didn't have a way in, in terms of contacts, um, it was the whole wristband issue. And if you didn't have a wristband, you weren't allowed to join in. And the corporate, the corporate sponsors were getting huge amounts more wristbands than the community groups. Sage got 150, and various of the corporations were getting between five and 600, and were marching in, I found, quite an alienating way in terms of being in outfits where everyone was all dressed in the corporate, you know, the shirt with the corporate name on it and the corporate colors and the, you know, sort of some of them were even doing like little routines, like little semi sort of dance routine. And they reckon it took, they were thinking it might take as long as 12 hours for the march to move off. Um, And it didn't in the end, it was something like nine but nine hours of just this sort of constant thing of every type of company that you could possibly imagine, McDonald's and Gap and Disney and whatever. And of course, to me, that goes straight back to the question about assimilation versus alternative. And there was an era in the States where people actually did talk about it quite a lot and used to describe themselves as assimilationists you know, and saying, that's, that's what I want. I do want to be just like anyone else. But... I suppose in a way, sometimes it, it, it kind of is a mixed message because if, if, if some of the earlier campaigns were about, look, we don't look, we're not that different from anybody else, mm-hmm. then that it's, it's quite easily to get confused um, yes. with whether that, y- you know, you, you are after assimilating or not. Yeah. Do you get what I mean? Oh, yeah. No, it's a very interesting and important point, for sure. But it was that thing of, because of the objectification of 
gay people as being, you know, living in this twilight world and the women wanted to be men and the men really wanted to be women and all of that type of very damaging stereotyping early on of, you know, these twilight people, you know, never came out except at night and were sexual predators and pedophiles and all of those sorts of things. The popular imagination had been fed a lot of that rubbish. And so the impulse was to be able to say, look, we're, we're, we are you. We're just as banal as you are. Exactly. <laughs> and we come from, you know, we are your children. Because a lot of the student politics, very early on, that was what we were saying. And some of it was about the Vietnam War and who was being sent off to die if in an illegal war or who was being demonized for being queers. And our response to that was, we are your children. You know, we come from you. But that very powerful message to conform. There's nothing wrong with being like everyone else. It's just the alternatives seem to be the things that are at risk. Mm. Because of corporate sponsorship, something like this. It's, it's, it's a vehicle that has a lot more power in terms of reach and... It's seductive. Access and... Mm. It's that thing of... Yeah, it is. It's very, very seductive. I find it very interesting that now you see little bits of it in, in ads on television here. There's one for a car and it's two lesbians and one's having a baby. Mm. And again, that's fabulous, you know, a blessed event. But, you know, going off to have the baby in that particular car. <laughs> um, yes, I think alternatives are becoming harder and harder to, to genuinely live. Do you think over time that women's voices have become more powerful as a result of all the changes? No, I think it lost its way. I think the women's movement has lost its way. And I sometimes despair at how little has genuinely changed, particularly in things like equality for not only very important things like pay, but the very important social things like, you know, who does the majority of domestic labor. But again, I think a lot of a lot of things have been individualized. It's it's not seen as a bigger picture. It's it can be identity politics that take up a lot of our time and focus when really maybe we need a greater sense of the collective. Yes, and we need to make sure that we, our eyes are open for what might come next. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, what do you consider to be the biggest issues facing the community today in the 50th, the year of the 50th anniversary? In this country, I feel like we're fragmented. You know, when we've talked about bi pride and this pride and that pride and black pride and trans pride. I understand the importance of those 
events and celebrations and those abilities for people who are like-minded and of, of, of a struggle that still needs a lot of work. But we're so much stronger together. Mm. There's a balance between people, as you say, with a common struggle or a common purpose gathering together as a sense of you know support for each other but needing the solidarity of the the bigger community mm-hmm. all of us queers <laughs> all a, of us queers it's a difficult one i suppose because if you feel like you're not represented by the community then then you don't feel like your voice is relevant to it absolutely if you can't see yourself within it Definitely. But I, I saw enough of it when I was back in the States to, to be hungry for it here again, to try to change those things. So what do you think the, the greatest triumphs arising from Stonewall? Oh, obviously, the, all of the legal stuff. You, you, you can't talk about doing anything else if you're at risk in the eyes of the law. And I do think, particularly to do with the right to marry, that has hugely changed society, simply because so many ordinary families, so-called ordinary families, found themselves at same-sex weddings. And people just adjusted. They recognise the emotions. Exactly. So, huge attitudinal change as well as legal. But still, you can have someone like a Thatcher come in and just throw an absolute destruction into the middle of what you thought you were achieving, or maybe just interrupt it for a while. But it depends on where in your own life you were at the point where that spanner was thrown into the works. So we need really vigilance, and we need our community. I think vigilance is a very important thing, and I think people are increasingly realizing considering all the things that are going on both here in the UK and in the States the we can't afford to be complacent in any way at all we can celebrate of course be joyful for all the things that we've achieved but yes freedom comes at at the price of vigilance really you do have to stay vigilant And there you have it, 80s Gay London and thoughts on present-day pride. Thank you very much to Lisa Power, Marguerite McLaughlin, and Evelyn Pittman. You've been listening to From a Whisper to a Roar, the oral history project conducted by Opening Doors London with the support of Heritage Fund UK. You can find out more about the project online at 
www.whisper2roar.org.uk. The two is actually the number two. And last but not least, thanks very much to my good friends, Rachel James and Beverly Honeybun, who provided the audio samples at the very beginning, even though I made them do it. Thanks for listening.